Uh, I used to eat cereal all the time for breakfast. I can't really do that anymore because I'm on a diet that says I can't have any grains, which like all cereal is some kind of a grain, right? So I can't really eat cereal that much anymore at the, at the moment. But some of my favorite cereals were Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Captain Crunch. I hope you guys all had breakfast this morning or else you're probably getting really hungry. So I'm sorry about that. I basically eat anything that has like a high concentration of sugar in it, right? But one day my sister was telling me a story while we're eating breakfast. And she said, there was one time that I accidentally grabbed the wrong bottle of liquid to pour into my cereal. I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I was like, what was it? She said, instead of milk, I poured in orange juice. Orange juice. Has any, have any of you guys ever done that before? Poured orange juice into your cereal? If you're, if you're like, what's that like? That sounds really weird. Well, it's absolutely repulsive. It's disgusting, okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever had the displeasure of doing that, but I guarantee you it is absolutely gross, okay? But being the curious eight-year-old that I was at the time, I thought to myself, how bad could it be? So I purposely grabbed the orange juice bottle and mixed it together with my bowl of Lucky Charms, okay? I'll tell you right now, that breakfast turned out to be anything but magically delicious. It was not magically delicious whatsoever. Uh, some things just don't mix well together. Lucky Charms and orange juice doesn't go well, right? Um, some things were just never designed to be mixed together, period, okay? Um, that's just the facts of life. Um, that's just the reality. So this morning, we're entering into a discussion about the seventh commandment, the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment very simply says, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. And I forgot to change the, um, the slide on here. I think it's going to pull up do not murder. Sorry about that. But it's actually do not commit adultery. So, um, but anyways, this... Adultery, if, you, if you're wondering, you know, because it, it's, it's kind of a, a bigger word. It's not a word we're used to talking about. Let me just define it for you for a moment. Adultery is a particular form of, of sexual sin. That's what it is. It's a particular form of sexual sin. Adultery is, is when someone who's married has sex with someone outside of his or her marriage. That's what it is. And so our message this morning is going to examine really this broad overarching topic of sexual sin. That's what we're going to be talking about. And I want to address two important questions that our culture is going to ask about this very important subject, okay? Two questions. Number one, why is sexual sin wrong? Why is it wrong? That's a big question that you I'm sorry, your culture is asking right now, what's so wrong with it? What's so wrong with it? And, and if, you, if you sit and think about it, it might be hard to actually answer that question. Number two, we're going we're gonna to ask this question, how do you protect yourself from sexual sin? So once we define exactly why it's wrong, then we need to determine how do we actually protect ourselves from it, okay? So I want to address the first question, why is sexual sin wrong? And I want to address this question head on, okay? Because that's the question your culture's asking. Your friends are asking it. You may be even asking it, even if it's not out loud, even if it's just in your own mind. Um, and you might be saying to yourself, well, I know that it's sinful. The Bible says so, but why? Have you ever, have you ever, you know, I know there's things in the Bible, and it's not just this particular issue, but there are, there are things in the Bible that are kind of weird sometimes, that seem really weird, and you're like, why is, this a, why is this wrong? Why is this a big deal? Why does the Bible talk about this and make such a big deal about it? Uh, and if you think about this particular issue of sexual sin, it's not like it's murder or anything like that. It's not hurting, any, hurting anyone, right? So why is it a big deal? Well, a major concern that I have with a lot of churches today is that we haven't done a good enough job answering this question for you. We haven't. 
Because our entire, even our, even our own Christian culture is asking this question, why is it wrong? And they're coming to the conclusion, well, it's not really wrong, and I can kind of do what I want with it. And that's why you see it as so pervasive, even in Christian churches. It's everywhere. It's infected the entire church. And so um, the, the problem that we, here's what we really, here's what we usually do with sexual sin. We basically, churches just kind of tell you it's wrong, and they just leave it there, and they don't explain why. That's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. Um, that puts you at a serious disadvantage for a couple of reasons. One, saying something's wrong without explaining why just increases your curiosity. Um, if you don't know why something's wrong, you're less likely to avoid it, and you're more likely to explore it. Um, you see it in movies all the time, right? Don't push the red button. Um, what does everyone want to do now? Push the red button, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, I want to know what it does, right? Uh, my nephew's a very curious kid. Um, tell him not to go touch the fire, and guess what? He's going to want to go touch the fire. That's just what he does, okay? He's like three years old, okay? So, I mean, there's part of it, a sense in which he just doesn't know better. Um, but tell him why it's not a good idea and show him why, and that speaks volumes to him, right? Um, you know, tell him that the fire burns you when you touch it, and then get him close enough to feel the heat, and he'll get the idea pretty quickly, right? Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. And if he's still you know, like really, you know, uh, curious about it, he'll go over and try to touch the fire and then find out, oh, it's really bad, right? So the more mysterious something forbidden is, the more people want to do it, okay? So if you don't want, if you don't know why sexual sin's wrong, it just makes you want to explore it all the more. There's a good reason why God hates sexual sin. It's a very good reason. And you need to know not just that sexual sin's wrong, but why it's wrong, why it's wrong. Number two, saying something's, something's wrong without explaining why gives you no motivation to do what's right. You get no motivation. If you don't understand the rationale behind why something exists in the first place, it's really hard to get behind it and to promote it and to do it. Um, you would never buckle your seatbelt in your car if you had no idea it's designed to spare your life in an unfortunate car accident, right? Um, you know, no one really likes to put on their seatbelt. It's not like, oh, yeah, I love putting on my seatbelt. It's like my favorite thing when I get in the car. No, it's not. You know, in fact, when you're a kid, you're always trying to figure out ways to keep your seatbelt unbuckled, right? That's just the way it is. When you have, if you, if you ever ride on a school bus, the most exciting thing about riding on a school bus is the fact that there's no seatbelts. We all buckle our seatbelts not because we like to, right? But we, we buckle our seatbelts because if we don't, it, we put ourselves in jeopardy every time we drive around anywhere, okay? That's, that's why. There's a good reason to do it. And there's a good reason why God hates sexual sin. And you need to know why it's wrong. You need to know why. So what's so wrong with sexual sin? Why does God forbid it? That's the question kind of we're asking here, okay? Oh, moving on, hold on. Why is sexual sin wrong? It all has to do with the illustration I opened up with. It all has to do with that illustration. Orange juice and cereal. Orange juice and cereal. It's a really bad idea to mix orange juice with your cereal because the two were never designed to go together and the combination spells disaster for your breakfast morning, right? Sexual sin in all its forms is a problem because sexual sin mixes together what was never intended to be mixed. Sexual sin introduces a parasite into the marriage relationship that eats it from the inside out. Uh, marriage shouldn't coexist with sexual sin because it can't. I mean, realistically, there's just no way that it possibly can exist together. And so, you know, just like orange juice doesn't mix well with your cereal, marriage doesn't mix well with sexual sin of any kind. But this isn't something I just made up, okay? I'm not just like, you know, I, it's not just a convenient technique that I came up with to keep you out of sexual sin and, and just to kind of control your life. This is the logic and rationale that the Bible itself employs. Okay? 
The Bible itself makes this case that marriage and sexual sin doesn't work and it cannot coexist. It can't. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the very, very beginning, okay? And we're going to see how the Bible makes this case. Genesis chapter 1. And let's begin in verse 11. It says, uh, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought, brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in, in, which, it's, uh, in which is their seed, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was good. Now jump down to verse 21. Verse 21. This should sound very similar. So God created the sea cre- great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, their, um, with which the water swarms according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Noticing a pattern here? Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, living, uh, sorry, livestock and creeping things and, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So are you sensing a theme here? There's actually two things that are going on simultaneously. First, everything God made, he made according to its kind. That's what he did. God created everything with order, in structure, with parameters and borders. He organized everything into categories, in classes, and brackets, and spheres. That's what he did. Everything was made according to its kind. And then second, because everything was made according to its kind, Everything God made was good. It was good. It was right because it was organized and it was systematized his way. And so it portrayed the picture of absolute perfection. It was good. Everything in the universe had its proper place, its proper function, its proper purpose. And therefore, it was good and it was right and it was perfect. Okay? That's kind of the pattern that's going on here. So where does marriage and sexual sin fit into all of this. We'll move forward into chapter 2, uh, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, God says, And it is not good that the, the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, helper that is fit for him. A helper that is fit for him. And so God says, first of all, it is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. In other words, what we have here is we have, you know, I don't know, all these plants, you know, and trees, and everything is made according to its kind. It's got like its own ecosystem and its own grouping, right? And we got all these animals, you know. I'm really bad at drawing animals. Uh, you know, and they're really happy because they're perfect and they're not really mad at anybody. And they have their own, they have their own groups according to their kind, okay? But, and, and God says that's good. This is all good. But then we have man, and he's all by himself. And actually, even though he's perfect, he's kind of sad. He's sad because he has no group. He has no group that he's a part of. And so God says, this is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. He should have a group that, that is made according to his kind. Okay? And so God says, I will make him a helper that's fit for him. That's fit for him. That corresponds to him. And so this should ring a bell in your brain because fit for him sounds very similar to the idea of according to their kinds. And that's exactly what God has in mind here. 
Okay? So God created humans the same way. There's a proper design for them as well. And so let's see exactly what God does in verse 19. It says, Now God, or sorry, now, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to see to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God parades all these animals in front of Adam and says, you know, are these guys that are going to be a part of, that are, that are according to your kind? Are these people that are going to be fit for you? Or, or uh, animals, are they fit for you? And Adam's like, no, they're not. They're not like me in any way. And God's like, you're absolutely right. They're not. I was testing you, I guess. So, um, but he says, so the idea here is that what God does is he, he decides to give him someone who's, who's suitable for him. So look at verse 21. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed it up its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there we have it. Woman is the perfect complement for man. And man is the perfect complement for woman. That's the design. That's the design. Woman was created to bring companionship into the human race. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how does marriage play into this? How does marriage play into this? Well, verse 24 tells us exactly how. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right here, we get God's definition for marriage. This is the biblical definition for marriage. A man and a woman come together and determine not to separate, and their union represents one flesh. One flesh. The, the idea is that their marriage is so tight that they complement each other, and, and they complement each other so well that it's as if they're one person. It's as if they're one person. That's the design. Now, I grew up in Awana, and I don't know if you, if you are familiar with Awana, but it's a, it's a program for kids where you play fun games and memorize Bible verses, and it's usually associated with some kind of a church that you're a part of. And in the Awana program, they always had a three-legged race. Always had a three-legged race, right? I mean, we had one back at the, uh, um, the, the big harvest you know, festival or whatever at the Collins house, right? We had this massive three-legged race. I got to run, run with Joel, which was really fun. So, but we had this three-legged race in the Awana program, and my friend and I, back in the day, were, um, we were really fast, like really fast. Both of us were really fast. And we put our, we decided to put our legs together, not our minds, and we determined to be the best three-legged race team ever. Like we wanted to be the fastest, okay? And if you've ever tried to run a three-legged race, you know it can be pretty challenging, okay? It's very hard. So after church, what we would do is we would tie a handkerchief around our legs, and we'd practice hobbling around the church, okay? And soon, hobbling turned into walking, and walking would turn into jogging, and jogging actually turned into running. And we could run almost full sprint as like one person. It, it was crazy. Uh, we became so fast at the three-legged race, we were almost as fast as either of us would normally run by ourselves. That's how fast we were. In fact, we went to a statewide Awana competition and almost beat the, re the state record time. Almost beat it. And the only reason why we didn't beat it is because one of the teams we went up against was so unbearably slow um, that, we had, uh, that it caused us to get caught behind them, and it forced us to slow down longer than we needed to. Um, and they say, I guess you're supposed to like tap them so that they would get out of the way. But we tapped them like a thousand times and they wouldn't get out of the way. So eventually my friend just like shoved them out of the way. Um, <laughs> and, but it slowed us down and we weren't able, able to break the record because of that. So we became so good at that three-legged race. It ba it's basically as if we ran as one person. We were one person. And it's really helpful to, I think it's a helpful analogy to think about how marriage is supposed to work. Marriage between a man and a woman operates as one flesh in God's eyes. 
you're one person. Uh, that's kind of the idea of taking the ribs out of the man and forming an entirely new person. The idea is you were made as one person, okay? You, yes, you are two separate distinct people, but when you come together in marriage, you're forming that bond as one person. And so it's really marriage is the ultimate picture of something made according to its kind, situated in its proper place, fulfilling its proper function and achieving its proper purpose. Why is sexual sin then so wrong? Sexual sins like throwing a grenade into the marriage. It's trying to rip apart the one flesh, okay? Uh, it, it hijacks and distorts the unity between a husband and his wife and completely discombobulates and disorientates both partners in the relationship. It would be like as if someone had the bright idea to try to join our two-man, three-legged race and, and turn it into a three-man, four-legged race all while the race is in full motion. Can you try to, can you imagine like something like that happening? Like you're running along and this random person pulls up beside you and it's like, excuse me, can I jump into this race? They're like, dude, we're like, we're, we're running right now. We're like in the middle of the race. And, and so, but one of you is like, yeah, let's just go and jump in. And so as you're, tr as you're running, you're simul simultaneously trying to tie this guy's leg onto another person's leg to make this three-man, four-legged race. What's going to happen? It's going to like, everyone's going to trip and fall, and it's going to completely ruin the race for you. It destroys the entire intention and the purpose. The unity that was once there, where you were totally in sync, is completely out of sync, and it completely gets destroyed. That's what sexual sin does. It destroys the unity of marriage. Sexual sin interrupts the marriage relationship, and it dissolves the fabric of its very essence. No longer is it, is it an intimate relationship between a man and a woman, a team that's unified to promote the purity of God's design. Now it's just a mess. It's just a mess. It destroys the marriage from the inside out. That's what it does. But here's the thing. Someone might counter this, okay? Someone might re respond to this and say, but that's just adultery. That's just adultery. Yeah, adultery is wrong because it destroys a marriage that's already existing. You know, someone, you know, someone who's committing sexual sin with someone else already in a marriage. But what about two people who are unmarried? Both are unmarried, and they have sex outside of marriage. Why is that so wrong? There's no marriage that they're destroying. What's the problem with that? It's wrong because it still destroys the marriage relationship. And you're like, but, but neither of them are married. True, they're not. But they're acting like they are. They're acting like they are. And when they're actually not, and this isn't destroying the marriage from the inside out, it's actually destroying marriage from the outside in, from the outside in. In other words, two people who stand on the outside of marriage have just declared war on marriage itself and all that it stands for by their very actions. And by declaring war on marriage, they've just declared war on God himself because he designed marriage. And he created it. And he defined it. They claim, here's the thing, people, two people who are unmarried and, and have sex together claim to be uncommitted to each other because they're not actually married. So they're claiming we're not committed. We're not in a marriage relationship. And then they do something that only committed married people should be doing. And so what have they just done? They've just destroyed the concept of marriage. They've just destroyed it. They've just ripped it apart. They, they show that they really don't care about marriage whatsoever. And because they don't care about marriage, they're saying that they don't care about God. That's how this works. But someone still might counter this, okay? And they might say, but those are just sexual relationships. Those are just physical sexual relationships. What about things like pornography or other forms of private sexual sin? What about those things? Why is that so wrong? It's wrong because it still destroys the marriage relationship. And you're like, but, but it's not having sex outside of marriage at all. There's no sex actually going on at all. True, physically speaking, that's true, 
But again, it's acting like it is. It's acting like it is. Matthew 5.27 says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And, and the entire culture that Jesus is talking to is like, yeah, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus upgrades all lustful thinking to the level of adultery. You think that adultery is bad. All lustful thoughts are on the same level. They're on the same level. Pornography and other private sexual sins are still such a disgrace to marriage because even though there's no physical sin being committed between two people, the sin is still generated from the heart. It's generated by the heart, the place where it always comes from, whether it's public or it's private. And Jesus says, that's still adultery. That's still sin. That's still destroying the concept of marriage. You see, God wants you to realize something here. He wants, to, wants you to realize this particular concept. This is kind of how God is kind of painting the picture and, and kind of um, establishing the parameters of how marriage works. Marriage is sex, and sex is marriage. You can't separate the two. You can't separate the two. Our culture has tried for thousands of years, and even especially today, to rip sex out of marriage completely. But it's impossible. It can't be done. They're always designed to go to get to, to be together. Um, it's like mixing Coca-Cola with Dr. Pepper. Okay. Once I pour one into the other, good luck trying to separate them again. I mean, seriously. Even if you got like, um, you know, some type of, um, I don't know, some some type of a uh, like a, a special device, like a colander, to try to you know filter it out or something like that. There's no way you can filter it. Once it's mixed, it's mixed. That's the way it is. And, th there's, and so that's the idea of marriage and sex. There's no way to separate the two. They go together, um, biblically speaking. And, and so there's really no such thing as sex inside of marriage, and there's really no such thing as sex uh, outside of marriage, biblically speaking. There's sex, and then there's sin. That's all there is. There's sex and then there's sin. That's it. And so sex, biblically speaking, is just, it's always inside marriage. It's always inside marriage. That's it. Those are the only two options. And so maybe you've been wondering to yourself, you know, why is sexual sin so wrong? Why is it such a problem? I don't, I don't understand. It's wrong because it's a direct affront against the nature of God. It's a direct affront against the nature of God. He's pure, he's holy, he's distinct. And he's made a creation that's pure and that's holy and that's distinct. That's it. Now we could talk about how sexual sin ruins marriages. And we could talk about how sexual sin acts like an infection and it spreads to every crevice of your Christian rock, walk. And we could talk about how sexual sin could lead to disastrous consequences like broken relationships, physical diseases, and possibly even jail. We could talk about how sexual sin makes you a more clever sinner, how it turns you into a better liar to protect your sin, how it converts you into a bigger manipulator uh, to get what you want, how it makes you more jealous uh, and discontent because although you search and search and search, you never get what you're looking for and the grass is always greener on the other side. We could talk about how sexual sin never satisfies and always leaves you feeling empty and lonely and lost and helpless and confused and frustrated and depressed. We could talk about all of that, and that's all true. But let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about why sexual sin's really wrong, why it's really a problem. Sexual sin's wrong because it's an assault on God himself. That's the biggest problem. God designed marriage and all of creation for that matter to reflect the unmixed purity of his character. Sexual sin, therefore, throws a wrench into the gears of God's perfectly running machine of marriage. And it causes it to stop and, and to 
and to break down. That's, the, that's what sexual sin does. We don't see it that way in our culture. We don't. We've turned it into one of our pet sins that we're willing to put up with. You know, we'll, we'll condemn murder. We'll say, yeah, that's wrong. But we're willing to put up with any form of sexual sin, whatever it may be. And we say, where's the harm in that? Where's the harm in that? Well, the problem is we've left God out of the equation. We've left God out of the equation. We don't see that sexual sin actually is a, is a direct assault against God himself. We don't see that. We don't see that. But it is. And we've ignored the words of, of a passage like Proverbs chapter 5 that says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, of the Lord. God ponders all of your paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin, and he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. God sees everything that you do. And sexual sin is directly tied to your relationship with God. So God is the real reason sexual sin is so wrong. And uh, we live we live for and serve a, a pure God who's made everything according to its kind, put everything in its proper place, and designed one man to be the perfect fit for uh, one uh, woman. And they, the idea here is you don't want to mess with that. You don't want to mess with that. Because if you mess with that, you mess with God himself. And so if I were to try to very simply answer this question, I would say this. Why is sexual sin wrong? Well, it's an assault on God himself. It's an assault on God himself. Think about that. Think about that. Really give serious consideration to that. I think sometimes we like to try to cover up the fact that uh, that, that we, we engage in some form of sexual sin or we like to try to excuse it somehow. We can't. We can't. Even our own thoughts condemn us and they relate directly to God himself. But we need to answer a second question. How do you protect yourself from sexual sin? Now that the Bible's made really an airtight case for why sexual sin's wrong, you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, I, I know it's wrong, but how do I keep myself pure? How do I put aside lustful thoughts? How do I avoid going down the wrong path? It's hard. Yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely it is. So how do you protect yourself from sexual sin? That's the second question I want to address. And I think some people might be tempted to think, well, just stop. Just stop. That's, I hear that all the time. Just stop. Just avoid it. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Sexual sin is alluring. Um, I kind of think it's, it's like eating Sour Patch Kids. Um, you can never have just one. Have you, I mean, have you ever had just one Sour Patch Kid before? No. Like when you open a bag of Sour Patch Kids, they're like, one, okay, I'm done. Like it never works that way, right? Never works that way. It's like Oreos too. It's the same way, right? You never want just one. You know, it's like you're sitting on the sofa an hour before dinner and you've got your bag of Sour Patch Kids and your mom warned you don't spoil your dinner. And so you tell yourself, okay, I'm only going to eat a few and then I'll be done. And so you eat, so uh, you, uh, you eat a few and then you eat a few more and then you eat a few more. And by the time dinner comes around, the whole bag's gone, right? That's just kind of the way it works. Um, and by that time also, you've got a massive tummy ache and you've spoiled your dinner. Um, sexual sin is a lot like that. It's alluring, and it's difficult to just cut off. It's very difficult to just cut off by your own sheer willpower. It takes a lot of mental discipline and a robust biblical strategy. But let me put this frankly, we often don't have either of those going for us. We aren't disciplined in our minds, and we don't have an effective strategy to stop it because we don't know our Bibles. And so we, we, we find ourselves 
questioning, why do I struggle with this? Why is it so hard? And the reason why is because we aren't disciplined in our minds. And the reason why we're not disciplined in our minds is because we've never developed a good strategy. And the reason why we've never developed a good strategy is because we don't know our Bibles. Because we're not living in communion with the Lord. And so that's the sad reality. And so let me take a moment to harvest a very simple biblical strategy for you and help you to kind of build that mental discipline necessary to stop sexual sin or maybe just to even disarm it before it even gets started. And there's a lot of things we could talk about. There's a lot of strategy you can bring to the game to help yourself overcome sexual sin. But I want to focus on one particular thing, and this often gets overlooked even in our Christian churches, I think. We, do, we don't think about this a lot. We don't talk about this a lot. And yet I think this is one of the most critical strategies you can employ to help yourself against sexual sin. Okay? Turn over to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. The book of Romans is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has come into this world and transformed everything. Everything. And that happens in our spiritual lives. And that happens on from, from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. The gospel has actually had an impact on all of history itself. And, and so in chapters 12 through 16, the final chapters of this book, Paul transitioned and he says, how does the gospel actually transform your life now? Once you're saved, does it actually have an impact on how you live? Absolutely it does. Absolutely. And so in chapter 12, Paul says that we are now, um, we, we now offer a spiritual sacrifice. It's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, we serve one another with spiritual gifts. Um, we love one another. Um, with our actions and with, with, um, with everything in our being. Uh, in chapter 13, we submit to authority. And then in chapter 13, verse 8, he kind of comes back to the idea of love, and he says this, okay? He says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Except to love one another. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, these three... Um, uh, sorry, these verses here that we're going to be talking about, not just verse 8, but verses 9 and 10 as well, these three verses don't actually have sexual sin as the primary focus here, okay? This is actually all about love. This is about love, the concept of love. But, but look at verse 9. Or actually, look at the end of verse 8 for a second. It says, for, for the one who loves someone else has fulfilled the law. Verse 9 says, for the commandments that say, you know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not uh, covet. And if there's any other particular commandment, it is summed up in this particular word. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So these verses don't have to do with sexual sin necessarily. But notice in verse 9, we have our seventh commandment, don't we? What's the seventh commandment? Come on. Do not commit adultery. Yeah, we're talking about that right now, right? Do not commit adultery. Look at verse 9. That's the very first commandment that he brings up. Do not commit adultery. So this does have to do with adultery. This does have to do with sexual sin, even though it also has to do with a couple of other sins like uh, murder and stealing and, and coveting, right? So love applies to sexual sin as well here, okay? And, and so these three, these three verses form for us a biblical strategy for attacking sins like sexual sin. And the biblical strategy is very simply what's said in verse 8, and that's just love. It's love. Love is the opposite of sexual sin. It's the counter to it. It's the weapon that you use against it. And you're like, really? Love? It's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. And strangely enough, if you really think about it, the, wor the world equates sex with love, don't they? 
But actually, it's exactly the opposite. The more you truly understand what love is and seek to implement it into your life, the better you'll avoid sexual sin. But to do that, we need to define our terms first before we ever see how this works, okay? And we've talked about this before. Love is not the ushy-gushy emotions that you feel, okay? That's not what it is. Love is not sex. That's not what it is either. And that may be how the world defines love, but that's not love. Love is very simply this. It's a commitment. It's devotion. It's making a fixed decision to choose one person above yourself, whether whether they make you happy or not, whether they meet your expectations or not. That's love. That's love. How do we know that's love? Well, the Bible tells us that God uh, sent Jesus Christ into the world to die on the cross for our, on our behalf. And 1 John tells us, in this is love. In this is love, that God sent his son to die for us. Did we deserve it? No. Did God have like ushy-gushy feelings for us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us? No. We were sinners. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what it says. And that's, that's the definition of love. It's sacrificial. And here's how Romans 13 uses love as a strategy to assassinate sexual sin. Okay? It says in verse 8, Oh, no one, anything except to love each other. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. You're not supposed to owe anything to anyone, okay? That's the idea. Don't owe any money of, you know, any debts of money or, or favors or whatever. But you are supposed to owe each other love. We all owe each other love. Now, a normal debt, let's, let's use kind of like money as an example. Normal debt has a fixed limit. It has kind of a cap, okay? And let's say like, for example, you know, like the question you guys ask me, let's say you forget to pay me at Six Flags Day, okay? You just forget, you know, and now you owe me a fixed amount of money of $35, right? That's what you owe me. As soon as you pay the $35, you no longer owe me anything. The debt's been paid and it's clear, right? And so now I want you to think about this in terms of a love debt, okay? Does love ever have a fixed limit? Is there ever a maximum on the amount of love that you're supposed to show people? No, there's not. Uh, there's never, no one's ever put a limit on love. In fact, if anyone ever did that, they would kind of be criticized in our culture even. Like how dare you even put a limit on love, right? People always say, my love is you know, infinite and I will love you forever and things like that, right? There's no limit to it, right? The Bible doesn't even put a cap on love. And that's the point here, there is no limit. There's no limit. There's no cap on the debt that you owe of love towards people. The debt we all owe each other in terms of love is infinite. You can't put a price tag on it because we're always supposed to love each other to the maximum capacity, and that never changes. That's the idea here. That's what's going on. The Bible puts a premium on how much you should love others. And now here's how this relates to sexual sin. Uh, ver the end of verse 8 says that love... Um, has fulfilled the law. Love has fulfilled the law. And, or sorry, the, or the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what, and this kind of should sound very familiar, right? These are four of the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment, the Sixth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment, the Tenth Commandment. And the question is, why on earth does Romans 13 talk about the Ten Commandments? Why, did, why, did, why does it bring up the Ten Commandments after just encouraging us to love others? What's the connection here? Because if you remember, one of the principles behind the Ten Commandments, love is at the heart of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Do you guys remember like one of our principles? You show your love for God by your love for others? That's not by accident. The first four commandments have to do with your love for God, 
The last six commandments have to do with your love for others. If you love God, you'll obey the first four commandments. If you love others, you'll obey the last six commandments. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, but the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay? Here's how this works. Here's how this works. Jesus says there are two commandments that are the greatest. Love God, love others. And on these two laws hang every other law that God has given us. Every single law. That includes do not commit adultery. Any form of sexual sin. That includes it. And here's why he says that. Think about this. Somewhere in your house, there's a closet, right? And in this closet, there's a round bar that stretches from one end to the other. On this bar, you can hang all your clothes uh, on clothes hangers, right? And while each clothes hanger hangs up one piece of clothing at a time, the bar supports all the clothes, doesn't it? Because it supports all the hangers. It's kind of a catch-all that does the work for everything. That's what that bar does. The reason why Jesus can say that there are two greatest commandments in the law is because loving God and loving others accomplishes every other single law in the Old Testament. That's what it does. And, and that's where Jesus got this, from, this idea from. He got it from the Old Testament. If you love God, you'll make sure you won't have any other gods before him. That's the first commandment, right? So if you love him, you're not going to do that. If you love others, you'll obey your parents because they're included in, in the other people that you're trying to love, right? That's the fifth commandment. If you love others, you won't kill them, right? You're not going to stab them to death and shoot them or whatever, right? Because you love them. And if you love others, here's a logic, you won't commit adultery. You won't commit adultery because you love them. You care about them. The solution to sexual sin is to love other people. Love confronts sexual sin because it exposes it for what it really is. It's selfishness. It's all about me. Sexual sin makes everything about you in that moment, how I feel, what I want. But love sacrifices what you want. It denies how you feel, and instead, it considers whatever's in the best interest of that person. So instead of lusting after that person, you're loving them. Instead of gazing at them inappropriately, you're guarding your thoughts of them. Instead of picturing them with impure thoughts, you're protecting them from yourself because you love them. You care about them. And it's not an ushy-gushy kind of love. It's a, I'm committed to loving this person regardless of how they love me, regardless of what they feel about me, because that's the same kind of love that God loved me with. And so love is the key to unlocking the secret of purity. A lot of people who struggle with sexual sin find it an enormous challenge to overcome. But so often, I think they find it a struggle because they're always on the defensive. They always feel like they're backed into a corner. And sexual sin's kind of got the upper hand. Well, here's the thing. Love puts the fight back into your hands. It puts you on the offensive. It's not passive. It's aggressive. It's active. You don't need to sit back and get pummeled by sexual sin. Take the fight to the sin. Love other people. That's the counter to sexual sin. Protect them. Care about them. And don't let anything impure say otherwise. That's the strategy. So I built for you the case why, uh, for the, uh, sorry, I built a case for why, and I set the stage for how. Why is sexual sin so wrong? It's because it's an assault against God's pure, unmixed nature and his design. And how do you protect yourself from sexual sin? A biblical and robust love for others, uh, which grows ultimately out of your love for God. That's the strategy. And so I hope this begins to kind of help you to think through, how do I begin to deal with this subject? I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult. It's always a battle, especially in your mind, throughout the rest of your life. But we can begin 
to put into place a, a good plan to overcome this particular sin. And I believe it all starts with love. When we begin to actually love God and love others the way God designed it, that begins to get, give you something tangible to actually overcome this particular issue. If this is a concern on your mind, if this is a concern on your heart, um, don't, don't let it just sit inside you. Don't let it become something that is so private. Talk with your parents. They're a great help in this regard. Um, you know, if you want to talk with me, I'd be more than willing to help you. I, I know it can be embarrassing, but I'm here for you. You know, talk with Christine. Um, and here's the thing. If you don't know Christ, if you aren't saved yet, sexual sin is not your biggest problem right now. Your lack of a relationship with God is, and that's what you need to take care of first and foremost. But if you are a Christian and you find this a struggle, let us help you. Let us help you. Okay? Close with me in prayer. Father, I know this is a, a, a challenging subject, and it, it, can, it can be a burden for a lot of people. But I pray, Father, that with what we've talked about this morning, that you would encourage these students to live lives that are pure and holy before you, that magnify and exalt the purity of God, um, the fact that you've made everything according to its kind in its proper place, one man, one woman together in a relationship um, uh, to promote the unity and the centrality of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us to find uh, motivation, to find power to overcome uh, whatever uh, form of sexual sin may dominate these students. And I pray, Father, that love would be the guiding force, that they would seek to love you and love others with all of their hearts. May that promote purity uh, to the highest level. And I pray, Father, that we would be people who are shine as lights in this world and who resist uh, the way the world is going down a, down a very dark spiral of sexual sin. May we promote what is good and what is right. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.